if you're beginning to cast and you have the switch rod and you're struggling, rather than using the proper ratio of uh, like a 10 foot tip, is I'll, when I see somebody really, you know, just struggling, I will put an eight foot tip on them and then miraculously that gets them a little more aggressive D loop. And I won't even tell them I do it. And then all of a sudden now they have the right, you know, line stick at the bottom of the D loop. And then that just lets them pleasurably cast. That was Jeff Liske with a nice spade casting tip if you struggle at all with Skagit. And let's be honest here, who doesn't struggle a little bit with Skagit and Spay? This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Please support this podcast by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash members and joining the members group. This is a quick and easy way for about the price of a cup of coffee to uh, get in the group and ask a few questions, dig a little deeper. Um, And I've noted this uh, previously, but Adam Curry's got this new podcasting 2.0 value for value. And this is what we're going to be transitioning to with the members group is finding a way if there's any value that I'm providing you, if you can provide that through um, the members group uh, connecting there. So check it out and uh, let me know if you have any questions. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. Koffler Boats specialize in custom-ordered aluminum boats and uses the best materials, components, and accessories available to meet all of your fishing and boating needs. The Jet Drifter, a perfect powerboat for shallow water rivers or lakes, will perform with as little as a 35-horsepower prop engine. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Koffler to check out the lineup right now. That's Koffler, K-O-F-F-L-E-R, wetflyswing.com slash Koffler. Check out the lineup and connect with Joe. Jeff Liskey, one of the biggest names in Great Lakes Steelhead, is here to shed light on the switch rod. We find out why he uses a 16-inch leader, how he finds fish before nymph fishermen, and what really gets him fired up uh, and is something he'd like to get rid of, uh, get rid of here this coming year. The G3, the 222, and a super rapid fire round. So without further ado, here is Jeff Liskey from GreatLakesFlyFishing.com. How's it going, Jeff? Great, Dave. Thanks for the invite, man. Yeah, thanks for coming on here. Um, you know, I, I always talk about this as I'm going down through the journey of some of the bigger names and people in the steelhead game. And I think from the very beginning, your name has been out there and I just haven't been able to connect with you until now. So I appreciate you uh, spending the time today. How are things going? They're going good, man. We're looking forward to, a, you know, our early start this fall again. Mother Nature seems a little cooler, but looking forward to another great season. Yeah, is it starting? When does the season, and I actually just had, it's funny because I'm starting to get a little more familiar with some of the, the local rivers over there. And um, so for you, when when does the season get going? When do you get fired up for, like, if we talk steelhead? Yeah, right. So usually, um, of course, now it's a happy thing. Now with the borders open to Canada, I usually go do my BC trip in September or so. And then as soon as I get back from that, you know, say around the end of September, beginning of October, the Great Lakes, you know, the Great Lakes migratory trout game starts firing up. And depending on what body of water you're fishing, you know, for instance, uh, where I'm at on the south shores of Erie, the farther east you go, the, the earlier the run starts, end of September, you know, going into early October, it's starting to roll along pretty good. If you go to the western end of Lake Erie um, or southern Michigan, you know, it's not quite fired up until, you know, Halloween or so. so it all depends on your venue north or south and when things really get fired up. Gotcha. So you just have to kind of be ready and see what, um, I mean, I guess what the rain is, is it all dependent on kind of the, the, the weather and the temperatures and is that the X factor? Yeah, you know, it is. It's, it's funny is because, um, Erie is all ground is all, uh, you know, runoff type streams and they're really affected by snow melt and, you know, precipitation. So if we have a dry fall, I find myself out stripping streamers out off the mouths of the creeks and the rivers. And until we get that nice flush of water to bring up the water levels to some type of mean average, I'm out in the lake chasing them, which is great because, you know, it's fun. You get to see them, you know, they, you know, nice streamer game. Um, but the minute we get enough flows where the flows stay consistent, um, then we, we start, you know, migrating towards the rivers. Michigan's are ground fed uh, streams, so they hold their potential of, you know, higher flows earlier. 
Um, so it all depends on, you know, precipitation, like you said. Okay. So basically you're kind of in BC and I guess, uh, so BC, how you've been doing that for a few years? I have been not the last couple of years, of course, the borders, but that's always been, you know, do the whole, you know, visit friends, go do some couch surfing, spend two, three, four weeks up in BC. You know, there's nothing like, you know, the dry line, you know, and that's that, that I do not have that game. I have a little bit of it um, in the Great Lakes, but there's nothing like a nice summer run steelhead. Hey, would you say, I mean, that's the biggest difference between the Great Lakes steelhead and up there? I mean, obviously there's probably lots of differences, but just that, right? You got dry line versus down and dirty sort of thing or getting down the fish? Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing like, you know, just throat flowing a dry line all day, start out with a dry and then work your way into a wet fly, you know, and you never really have to change your program. Once in a while, put a tip mount if it gets super gritty or something. But, you know, we do have the opportunities um, for dry flies and some wet flies. Um, it's just that whole time period that a summer run fish stays within its natal waters and they get you know they're four you know sometimes four or five years in their home stream like the dean or something and those fish get super grabby compared to great lakes and then i'll be honest dave ours are not steelhead uh you know i'm gonna go on record i'm probably one of the only great lakes guy that'll say that they're not steelhead that you know they're all migratory rainbows so they're really great fish but you know maybe that's something to do with they're not so grabby too right right that's it yeah so they're they're migrating in from from the lake, and they're. Um, I mean, there. So there isn't really a time. So by not grabby, you mean you've got to pretty much get that fly right in front of their face for them to to eat it or even <laughs> slip it in there. Is that how it works? Uh, well, you know, that's like you know, I don't ever like to use the word force feed, force feed, or slip it in their face. But <laughs> you know, when the water temperature is cold, yeah, absolutely, you gotta you gotta you know boggle it in there a little bit but they will move for the fly it's just the vertical movement you know they'll come up for it and you know just when you think these fish won't do it i'll have you know three or four or five come to the dry fly in like one day so it's all about um picking the right water temperatures in the time of season early season when the water temperatures are in that mid 50s it's very potentially you know great time to do it and then again late in the spring you know uh, is another great time to do it too. There you go. Okay. And I'm just curious, you know, it sounds like you choose the river based on, you know, the conditions and things like that. And we're probably going to dig into a little bit on some of the stuff you do out of your boat, but I'm curious, are you doing an equal amount of, you know, getting up into these rivers, the smaller water sort of stuff versus kind of the bigger, you know, the mouse and into the lakes or what, what are you spending most of your time throughout the year? You know, I, you know, I'll do spend the time early season. Um, when the flows are down, I'll find myself out, out off the river miles and stuff with the boat, stripping streamers. But my true passion and the cool thing about, you know, you know, a swung fly presentation is, is that I can generally stay a day or two or three days ahead of the armada of indicator fishermen um, because they need a little lower flows. You know, they need that little bit more sight where, you know, I can, I can pile on a big giant, you know, profile fly and get it get it out there and stay ahead and have a little bit of working room because most of the fish you know when the water's a little higher on these runoff streams they won't pile up into the you know the community holes they'll just stay out on the edges and you just cover the water on some of the flats or the straights and stuff um and that seems to be my game of choice as the last you know five six years or so gotcha so so it is for you it's a swinging uh, game you're not really talking uh nymphing at all this is you're always focused on swinging if, if you know myself i wouldn't put anything on but a, you know a dry line but um i do do indicator fishing for clients but it's i look at it as a skill set um a lot of times we'll use an indicator um just to get that fish under their belt or get a little for me to ev evaluate their skill set and then i'm always trying to get somebody pushed over to the more challenging and challenge themselves with trying to swing a fly for the day Exactly. Okay. So, and that's a great tip is that if you, you can get out there a little bit earlier in the season or season or on those, those rivers and, and put something big on, I mean, are you putting, what's your fly? What are you looking like? Let's talk a little bit about just the setup, just to get somebody queued up here. Um, and I could, could we think of a, I'm not sure. I know there's a bunch of rivers that you fish, but is there one that maybe we can think of as a focus just to, um, help guide the conversation a little bit? Some, maybe something that's not a secret out there. 
Yeah, no, there is no, I, there is no secret with social media yeah. anymore. You know, <laughs> no, there are no secrets. <laughs> it's like you know everybody's networking together. But just rule of thumb, if you you know, well, let's just we're going to put the south shores of Lake Erie on the map. If you look at it in general, um, if the eastern end of the lake, the the smaller rivers clear faster. And then as you work towards the lower gradient rivers to the western end of Ohio, you know, you've got the Huron, you've got the Vermilion, um, and even Rocky. Those rivers are, are running through flatter terrain through farmlands, and they don't clear as quick as if you go all the way towards Erie, PA, and into New York a little bit um, until you get to the Cattaraugus. And then, and then at that point, it's a larger river, and it does stay silty really you know, a long time. So I usually start east you know, um, and work my way back west. And then right in the middle of this, they call it Steelhead Alley, but I like to call it Rainbow Trout Alley. But they, it's right in the middle. It's one of the larger rivers are um, the Grand River. And that gives you a little more working room. Um, it stays a little more gritty, but is a, you know, classic ledgy swing water, sort of like the Clackamas or something. And then we have room to work between the community holes. There's a lot of bee water. Um, and then, you know, probably in the last 10 years, 12 years, I've been really concentrating on the Cuyahoga River, which is, has tons of, pri- you know, no private access. It's all public national park. The numbers are way down, but it's a classic, you know, big water, lots of room to swing a fly, you know, and they're probably going to start stocking it, you know, very soon. Um, but the numbers are down, but we still get fish there. Okay. So, so in, it sounds like, yeah, you do have some. A few of those bigger, and maybe we could focus a little bit on that. Um, you know, I guess talking swinging, but you're also swinging. I mean, that's, I guess, where the switch rod and things like that come in, too, because you can swing in some of these small rivers as well. I do, yeah. So as everybody starts out, they start out with a little bigger um, outfit than needed. Um, I settle into a nice uh, rod, switch rod that's a five weight. You know, of course, it's a Scott, but it doesn't really matter. But the grain weight is around 330 grains as once you perfect your casting and all your, you know, everything that goes along with this whole journey of swinging a fly is that right around 330 grains is a great grain weight that you can still get out some heavier tips, some bigger flies. But the fun thing about it is when you do connect with the fish, you know, you're more connected with a smaller rod than you are your traditional six or seven weight true two-hander over 12 foot. What's the, um, and what this is, so the five weight and what length is this rod? Are, if, are we talking, this is kind of a switch rod? Yeah, it is 11, you know, it's about 11 foot. And I would always consider a switch rod something that I could grab with one hand and still cast it. You know, that's under 350 grain to me. I can still grab it if I had to and do a single hand spade cast if I had to. And we still do use a lot of traditional, you know, seven, you know, seven weight single hand ten footers to swing flies too when the water drops down too. But my go to is that eleven footer. Is eleven footer good? So, and that's one where definitely, I mean, you could use in some of the smaller streams, and then even if yeah, it's a little bit bigger water. Do you use that one also if you're hitting some of the bigger water out there? Or are you going to a bigger rod? You know, um, I did use a bigger rod, Dave, but, you know, with today's modern, you know, lines, um, what I'll do is I'll just uh, drop on an intermediate Skagit head and use the same light tip, but then just use uh, intermediate sink Skagit head and I can get the flies down in that dirty, gritty water and still enjoy that nice light rod. Perfect. And you're probably talking about like scientific angles at the, the lines you're using. I am. Yep. I'm, uh, you know, I'm on the advisory team for them and it's so cool to be involved with, you know, them. And then, you know, some of the other super fishy guys that are involved with the two handed game, we feed off each other, but I learned quite a bit from them too. And our waters and the one reason too, is that not only are they gritty because of runoff rivers is they also most, the bulk of our fish are coming in when the water is like in the high thirties or mid thirties. So these fish are Sometimes even that intermediate just slows that that swing pace down just enough for them to, you know, hitchhike onto the fly, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's that's the, I mean, it's that is the secret. So you got the water temperatures are the first thing, but then as far as presentation for the fish, it is speed. So you're trying to slow that thing down as much as possible. And is that, is that the goal and, and still swing it? It is. It's So it's a sight thing, you know, um, because I play the rivers when they're on the drop and I push the envelope of how gritty it can be. So like that 14, 18 inches of visibility with cold water, 
You know, you got to park it marionated in their face just long enough. Um, and then usually you can find for the course of the day, um, if you make the cast and make the swing, is just a is a is a second count of like, are they on a, like a seventeen second swing type of water? Are they going to be on the you know the tanky stuff on the edges? But a lot of times, once I find that swing pace that they're in, you know, on a count method, then I'll just zero in on those types of runs for the rest of the day. There you go, and, and those runs are typically. Like you said, you might be fishing the edges, um, maybe not the bucket, but I guess it depends, right? If you've got some higher, dirtier water. I mean, how do you do? So let's take it to the river. Let's say we're, let's just stay with that switch. I think it's interesting because we talk a little bit more about some of the bigger stuff. So you've got this kind of a shorter rod. When you go to, say, that medium size, maybe say medium, small size river or, or, or creek or whatever, I mean, how are you setting up for that? How are you reading the water? Where are you fishing? And what's that look like? Yeah, so what's interesting about runoff rivers um, are is that because they're spate, is that they clear from the edges in and the particulates drop out on the edges. And then because they're shale, but predominantly shale bottom, is that these fish will pull sometimes as much as, you know, a good 16th of a mile away from the classic community hole and use that B water in between the runs where if you were there on a normal flow day, it would literally be like you'd walk right by because you could see bottom. But you got to be a visionary to see that, oh, OK, we just put two foot of water on top of this. You know, and a lot of times I'm swinging straight up flat shale with little nooks and crannies from the glaciers. And then, as we know, as it gets towards the end, it starts parking on the edge on the dangle. That's usually where they're at, you know, a rod and a half away. You know, people have a tendency to like. You know, when you first learn how to spade cast, they want to bomb it across to the far bank. Well, they're 60 feet too far, generally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so we, but I will say that you do need to make a little medium length cast. So to get it the setup, sort of like directing an airplane into a landing field, you got to do all your manipulations to get that right speed just to get it to park right there in that G spot, you know, along the edge. That's right. So uh, now, and I think we'll we'll dig in. This is interesting because I think it is, um, you know, just trying to. We've talked a lot about steelhead, but trying to pick out some of these little little kind of tips that might help somebody. And that that's a good one is thinking of of the edges. So I mean, do you, when you're hooking up, are you fishing? I mean, what, what's give us a typical like uh, width of a like a medium kind of average size stream? How, how so? You're it sounds like you're casting thirty feet and under. That's all like the length you're casting. No, so generally speaking, um, you can. Our rivers are probably around eighty feet wide or so. Um, you know, and there are places that are really narrow, and there's some creeks that are which I don't frequent, which are as wide as your you know two two truck what with. But um, what I usually like to do is um, when you have your skagit head out, and this is even going for big water too, is that your running line when your head is stripped into within your overhang. When that loop or running line equals the rod tip length, so if your rod's 11 foot, that's 22 foot of running line, that's basically the most you need to fish, plus you get the most control over the fly by manipulating the back of that head. So I generally, once I see somebody out there where you know they're stripping in and that loop is way longer than the rod, we're pretty much overcasting to that point. Um, and if we have to, we'll go to the other side of the river and fish it from what I call the, you know, everybody calls the Canadian side. So I, I really try to get that, that presentation better rather than worrying about the long cast. You know, that's my, that, that's half the secret is get that, you know, how everybody, you know, you just know when you're going to get that grab and that just comes with manipulating that, you know, the head itself. Yeah. Gotcha. So on some of these runs, you know, when you come back year after year, I mean, are you are the same spots? Is the river staying kind of similar? Are you going back to the same spots year after year? You know, is it a typical guide is like, oh, you know, I got him there yesterday. I'm going to go back there tomorrow morning. But the problem is that we forget to take that note to the migratory fish, and they're on their way up or down. So, <laughs> um, first off, you got to, you know, the water levels, they might be parking, um, like in the elevator pools at the head of the pools. But in generally speaking, we could have major changes because the runoff rivers, you could have a big log jam in your way. But overall, they don't really fill in a whole lot. They fill in and they dig back out. But I will say 
that, you know, whatever it was 15, 18 years ago when I really started swinging flies is that I found places that these fish will lay that I never would have ever threw an indicator because, you know, you're, you're bank to bank fishing. And I'd like, well, I'm just going to start right here and work my way right through this section. And I'm catching fish where normally I would have just either waded through or made like a half-hearted cast and got out of there. So I really learned a lot more swinging the flies that is a local, is like a searching, you know, power fishing type deal. No, and I'm glad you mentioned the 15, 18 years ago. I, I want to, maybe we could kind of pause here and go back into the the time machine a little bit. I, I, I'm curious since you've, you know, been around, you're one of the most well-known people up there. Can you break down a little bit of the history there, like that transition into spay you know maybe what it was for you and talk about you know t- take us back to before and i know we've talked a little bit about this on the on the show but w- when did that happen when, when did that spay kind of revolution happen out there so you know it was everything was you know really serious gear fishing with indicator fishing and there were the numbers of fish were just you know absolutely you know off the chart chart hatchery wise but um i met um one of my mentors rick warwood um he came into town we both did a you know a, a steelhead presentation for the for the natural history museum and he was working on his two-hand certs and that's over 20 some years ago and then uh Right after that, you know, he said, hey, we're working on our stuff. Did you guys want to learn how to spay cast? I says, I do, because I'm going out west and I'm single hand casting. I'm dying. So I went up there with a group of guys um, up on the Grand River on the north shore of Lake Erie at Bean Park. And he had a gentleman, Neil Holding, who's I would have to credit all of my beginning knowledge and even what I know today. My grassroots came from him. He's up chasing Atlantic salmon. Um, but those two, I started taking lessons from them and then they started coming down here and cultivating their craft of casting because they knew nothing about the fishing, more casters. Um, and then, um, uh, Rick is now a professional band, you know, band player retired, but Neil is, he's came down for years and really helped us out here doing presentations and getting us those starting points of casting. And then we just took it, you know, I took it from there about how to adjust what we need. And, you know, the out west, all those guys, and they, they forgot more than I know about swinging flies. So I sort of took their knowledge and adapted it to our area. And below and behold, 20-some years ago, you know, it's it's a thing around here now, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was, you know, and I go, we, we had... Um... Gosh, I guess it was quite a while, while back, but, uh, you know, Kevin Feenstro is another another person who's probably, you know, similarly known as you, you know, and he, he was there early on and things like that. I mean, so it basically, you guys, so you got going on this and, I mean, so people started picking it up. And now as you look around, um, you know, on the water, I mean, probably similar to anywhere, you're going to have a little bit of mix, but you see a lot more guys swinging flies or is it still kind of a unique little subset? No, it's so crazy, Dave. It's uh, I can actually go down to any of the rivers, and, and there might be more anglers swinging a fly now. Especially the the younger generation, I think, is so cool, is because one good thing is that they weren't raised with the outdoor, you know, outdoors and like I, you know, the red and white bobber with the worm and catching fish, like you know myself. Their first engagement to fly fishing was that's it there was no conventional gear so their expectations of catching a fish is not as high as you know some of the older generations plus they're highly educated and they love the challenge so they just dove right in it's super cool man it's just i see a lot a lot of young anglers and i says hey you ever have an indicator rack nope just got this one <laughs> it's 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 awesome so it's a pleasure to see it actually i love it i love it yeah it's it's like the new generation coming through we just had an episode from um that went out, uh, uh, the taco Flyco. he's out in California, this guy. <laughs> and it's, it's classic because, you know, it's definitely different. You know, I mean, this guy is bringing together tacos and fly fishing and skateboarding and stuff. And, you know, um, I think he's caught, got some flack along the way, but I've been hearing from listeners since the episode has gone out and people are totally resonating with it. You know, they're like, man, just like you're talking about, it's like the newer school, you know, it's like people, they want something different and they're interested in, and hearing cool people with a different perspective. So I, I think it's great. And you're seeing that out there in the Great Lakes as well. Absolutely. More so than just, I want to catch a fish type deal. Yeah, exactly. Nice. 
So, I mean, we obviously can dig in all day on the tips and tricks, and we will um, dig into it more. I wanted to, you made a note kind of off air before we got going on uh, fish handling and conservation. Can you talk, break us down? So, if we got that fish coming in, um, say, you know, you hook the fish, you got in, talk about how you uh, safely play, release that fish. Yeah. So, the struggle with the guide is that, um, is that we're dealing with, you know, anglers that sometimes don't have the ability to, you know, touch and feel fish on a regular basis. So, you know, getting that, you know, grip and grin shot, which is very critical for a lot of anglers, some not, but in general, uh, we need to get that nice photo. So we, I've been using, you know, a larger rubber net, of course, and then we get it in the net and then we have a little school. We get it out in some current. We have a little school of talking about like, all right, if you do this, it's going to get a little crazy. Um, and then we show them how to unhook the fish properly. We get the rod, take the rod out of the pitcher for the for the pitcher. We don't have the, the rod on the shoulder like a parrot, you know. But then at that point, we talk about, you know, we talk about when you go into the net for these fish, a lot of anglers will go right in there like, like you're going to grab it. And I was like, no, no, you got to be there, go in there slowly and let the fish adapt to you touching it. And then we, we do a trial run over the net and then we, you know, we'll lift it out of the water and that's going to wiggle and shake and get them a little feel for how they get their hands locked on the fins. And there, you're not up under the stomach and like stuff like that to support it. And then after usually a couple times, I'll say, you know, you feel uncomfortable and then at that point in time, we'll go ahead, lift, and as soon as they lift it out of the net, we take the shot. And then as soon as we get the shot, we they just drop it right back in the water for the release shot. So it's never really out of the water. And, you know, I have definitely, I have the two-foot rule. No fish comes in less than two foot of water where they don't be banging on the rocks. But I feel that once they feel that they don't have to have a state of urgency to really firmly grip a fish, um, and be more like a Zen and just approach it really relaxed. Things go out a lot better than when you start squeezing things, as you know. <laughs> and then they get crazy. And then, of course, you get these, you get the, then the banana peel shooting out the hands goes. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Yeah. No, that, and that's good. I, that clarifies that. So, and, and so on the net, what, what is the, the rubber net? Is this one of those like typical style net? What, what are you using there? Yeah, so I've tried the cradle. Um, that's okay, but you know, there's some conversations, you know, conversations about it. it keeps the gills closed. But um, the larger the rubber net you can get, I'm using the largest one I can carrying around. Um, it's just made by a custom um, net company out of Michigan. They all make them, but something with the rubber net so when you're in the water, they have a little room to work in the rubber net. And then of course, there's no there's no way the, the you know I usually pinch most of my barbs down so we don't have to worry about the hooks getting stuck in the rubber either so it's it's one of those deals where I think the rubber really helps to keep that fish rolling and getting tangled in other types of nets you know I think that's a key factor too perfect yeah so you're so in in barbless too you're you're pitching that's a great tip uh, do you find that um you know, I mean, for barbless versus barb, it's it's not. It's better just to go barbless, and you're not like losing many more fish. You know, you're gonna if you're gonna lose a fish, the barb's not gonna help. It was some type of other industrial accident, like the line behind the back of the reel, or popping a tippet, or forgetting to let go of the handle. But as far as like being a fish on, even if they run at you and slackline you, they probably would have got off with a barb anyway. And then I don't have to worry about a hook in somebody's hand or their ear or their face. We just, it's really easy to get it extracted from them too, especially swinging a fly, you know? So I haven't had any problem or most of the time I do it and the clients don't even know I'm doing it. <laughs> do you have a, probably, I'm, I'm guessing a mix of clients, both kind of beginners and, and skill level. I mean, it, it, the net, do you recommend, I mean, if somebody's out there, just have a net or is there a way to do it without a net? There is. Um, so if you don't have a net, um, then, you know, swinging a fly is, is the easiest way because you have a very, you know, good, strong connection of 15 pound or 20 pound right to the fly. So um, I always recommend get yourself out in deep enough water and then slowly work it in. And then you're going to have to have that slack line. Once you get the fish closed, slack line between the reel and your grab handle. And then basically release about 15 foot of slack line. Let that slack line drop to your 
left hand or right hand, whatever you're dominant. Now you've got the line in the hand and slowly bring that fish up to you with, you know, right up to that strong connection of tippet or leader and then grab your pliers and unhook them and never really touch them. If you really want to touch, if you really want to touch them, then you could hold that strong tippet and slowly work your hand, you know, underneath the tail. And then you can, then you have the nice grasp on that fish there. And they seem to be pretty calm until you get them out of the water. You try to, of course, put their belly against gravel. That's when usually people have an issue is they try to make all this happen because they're so excited to catch a darn fish that they bring it into like six inches or a foot of water. Well, that fish is not going to be happy, <laughs> you know, and always look for a little bit of a chilled water, like a little couchy, slow or calm water where the fish are not going to have any advantage over you by, you know, current pulling against them. So that would be my, that's, that's how I do it without, easy don't carry a net on my own ever. So. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Koffler Boat specialize in custom ordered aluminum boats and uses the best materials, components, and accessories available to meet all of your fishing and boating needs. The Jet Drifter, a perfect powerboat for shallow water rivers or lakes, will perform with as little as a 35 horsepower prop engine, but the whole design will also accept larger engines. In addition, the Jet Drifter is also designed to be rowed. The Jet Drifter can be custom built in 14 foot through 18 foot lengths. And uh, I've been rowing Koffler Drift boats for most of my life. I remember going down the river in my dad's Koffler boat when I was a kid. And since I have transitioned into the 17 by 54 drift boat, perfect for packing a ton of gear and still staying nimble. If you need a bulletproof boat that can literally sit outside all year long when not in use and take a beating, Koffler has the boat for you. Whether a jet drifter, drift boat, Rocky Mountain trout boat, or sled, Koffler has you covered. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Koffler to connect with Joe and the family today. That's Koffler, K-O-F-F-L-E-R right now. Wetflyswing.com slash Koffler. You support our podcast by clicking over through that link to connect with Joe. Please let Joe know you heard of the ad through the podcast when you connect and check back with me to celebrate if you end up making a purchase. Okay, now back to the show. Okay, and, and and as far as the the catch and release for, and we're focused on steelhead here. So most of these rivers are. I mean, can you keep? I would describe that a little bit because you've got. I mean, there is this interesting thing because these are there's hatchery fish. There's wow. What, what what do you have out there? How's that all that look? So you know, in in and around on the south shores of Erie, it's hundred percent trout hatchery. Um, but the Great Lakes in total is probably close to fifty percent wild fish. So, like, if you're in Michigan, you're fishing for wild steelhead. So you have to be really careful of, like, you know, your practices. Um, here in, you know, South Shores, it's two fish per angler when they're in the river. And there are guys that bonk them. Um, and I have no problem with them bonking a the fish. They're hatchery fish, and um, they're meant to be harvested. But, you know, I would have to say 90, over 90% of the fish are released still, um, which is nice. Maybe, you know, high, high 80s, 90s, because, you know, I'll catch quite if I'll catch quite a few fish that have been caught before, you know, during like, a, like after a run, say two weeks. So there is a good practice of catch and release um, in the summertime for the, the trollers out in the middle of the lake. They don't. But that's just, you know, grazing the surface of the amount of fish that we have. And you mentioned uh, we're going to probably dig in if we have some time here um, on, you know, maybe talking about the boats and the bigger water stuff. But. Uh, before we get there, I just want to swing us back to that river. You know, we were talking about fishing just to make sure we kind of covered that. So, so we're talking about maybe a mid medium sized stream. You know, maybe it's in the eighty foot range or whatever it is. You've got this this switch rod, this eleven foot switch rod. Um, we talked about maybe you can talk about the line. Did you describe like what, what's the scientific angler? What is the one line? If somebody's going to go pick one up right now for that eleven foot three hundred um, grain line or whatever, what what would you be going with? You know, it's a spade light, you know, it's basically a nice short, you know, a nice short skagit head that, you know, I think as a, as a beginning uh, two-handed caster doing, you know, performance skagit cast that if it's very long with them, because I would have to say the major fault for most casters when they're beginning is they never really get up into the key, key position before they make the forward stroke. They're really low in the box. Um, people always hear in the box, in the box. They don't realize that it's left or right of center. It's not up or down. <laughs> so 
that's the key to a good cast and, you know, have your tips. But I would have to say that, you know, the spay light, um, I like the integrated running line because in warmer water, only because in warmer water, I can strip the fly in and then I don't deal with the loop to loop as much. Um, one trick I do use is I use shrink tubing. If I'm going to do a loop to loop system from my running line to the back of the, the spay light head, I'm actually running um, a little bit of uh, shrink tubing there just to make that transition nice and smooth. Because, you know, a lot of times if you're working under trees, um, which we do work to a lot, some of my best fishing spots, no one likes to fish, but you really can't get the whole head out because you'll be taking the top of your rod out. So we're casting probably a third of the head in the rod just to be able to make that nice little D loop and just punch it out there with some type of body English, you know, because the trees are just so tight. Um, same with the OP too. So you don't necessarily have to have huge overhang just to, you know, to make a good fishing cast. But, um, and then I usually, um, I always recommend that, you know, if you got a short rod, like 11 footer, use a 10 foot tips on it. I'm using, you know, the TC tips there, you know, they're multi-density. And in my area, my go-to is still the, you know, sink two, sink four for average conditions. And then, um, when the water bumps up a little higher, I use a three, five, um, and then I usually, the time I have to use a type six sink tip, um, I will at that point probably consider dropping on an intermediate head just so I don't have to fight that heavy, you know, that heavier, you know, sinking, uh, tip. Um, another little tip too, is, um, if you're beginning to cast and you have the switch rod and you're struggling rather than using the proper ratio of, uh, like a 10 foot tip, is I'll, when I see somebody really, you know, just struggling, I will put an eight foot tip on them. Um, and then miraculously that gets them a little more aggressive D loop. And I won't even tell them I do it. Um, and then all of a sudden now they have the right, you know, line stick at the bottom of the D loop. And then that just lets them pleasurably cast. And it shortens up their ratio from like that two and a half, you know, length of rod to like two. And then it's like, golden form so that's an awesome tip yeah that's always the we've talked about that a lot we've, we've tried to dig into lines and it, you know sometimes it's confusing sometimes it's not so I, lo- I love that you keep it straightforward and yeah we're talking about a shorter rod so that's yeah the two the 2.5 or whatever and this is 11 foot rod and just going back to that tip you mentioned before on the length so you talked about you know if it's 11 foot rod don't have any more than 22 feet is it was that your swinging length is that what you were describing there um, no, so if you have an 11 foot rod, yeah, about 22 feet, and I can even go shorter because most people, like I say, have a tendency to keep their dominant casting hand down, like at shoulder height, and never really up by their ear, you know, to do that classic, you know, come down with the hatchet cast. But so I find myself running shorter with them, um, and then as I as I have some customers, I can lengthen that length up a little bit, um, and put on like say, you know. Once in a while, I'll put on a 12-foot tip with a longer rod, but very rarely, um, very rarely. So that gets us there. So we've got our our rod, our line, um, and maybe just to kind of wrap this up quickly on the, the leader. Is this pretty standard for you? What's your leader look like when you're if you've got this setup we're talking about? Yep. So I usually run a butt section of, you know, I would say 25, uh, 25 and then, um, or 20 depending, but if I do 25, I step it down to 20 pound and I'm using the absolute leader material from SA. Um, and I do use fluorocarbon. Um, and I look, look at the diameters too, but, and that'll be like my gritty water conditions. And then, um, if the water clears up a little bit and I want a little more motion on the fly, I'll do 20 pound butt section down to 16 pound, um, for the stepping it down about a one foot, about a one foot butt section. And I'm the firm believer, um, that I want my fly extremely close to my tip. I want to have super good control of my fly, um, in cold water and gritty water. These fish won't, they don't have, they can't move for the fly. So if my tip's down in their wheelhouse and my fly's up there swimming around like I would be fishing for summer run fish, more than likely you're going to get a mafia pluck and then it's going to be out of their wheelhouse and they can't get it. So I like to keep it, you know, super short, 14 inches, maybe 18 inches, two foot would be like my longer for my rivers. 
And then as it gets warmer and clearer, then I'll lengthen that up to your standard, you know, two feet or plus. Okay. And the uh, the mafia pluck, describe that because I've, I've missed that one. The, the mafia pluck means that, you know, the fish, are, the fish are in position where you know they are, and the water's probably, say, 14, 18 inches, and the water temperature's 34, and yet the speed, the swing speed's right, and you find where they're living, and it's coming through there. They see it, they try to get it, and they make a half-hearted little drive-by pluck, but then it pulls away from them too fast, or bec- or they lose it in sight because the, the leader, the link between the sink tip and the fly is a little long. And it, it, it just wants to like move and progress around a little bit too much where if you got it on a short dog leash, you can, you know, like you call it before you sort of almost like feed it right in there, really direct, direct transmission right to the fish. So that's a short, and then the leader literally from your, from your uh, fly line, uh, from your tip down to your fly, how long is that typically? Uh, so it's going to be about 14, 18 inches, but closer to 14 or 16, really, really short. Especially if you're fishing, if you're fishing wood, I can get right up tight to wood and fishing structure really tight um, with where if I don't, if I get a little longer leader on that thing, then it gets a lot of snags in there too. Okay. And just so I, and so the butt section, typically you said clear water. Well, let's, let's take the, the normal, maybe not clear, just normal. You're going to have a, a one foot section of 25 pound. Is that what you said? Yeah, so basically about six would be the one foot section would be the 20 pound and about a six inch butt section up there. So it's reverse. So somewhere about, you know, that six inches of butt and then the one foot of step down. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is an ultra super. You're literally, I mean, if you could stick the fly onto your, you know, as close as you can get, like you said, this is super tight. It is. And I open up, you know, I open that dog leash up a lot too, but in general, um, they're, you know, they're seeing the fly first if you're doing everything right. And we have a lot of, le- a lot of ledges. So like you're literally talking, going from say, you know, three feet to four feet within one step. And it has to drop off that ledge right in those glacier grooves. And if it doesn't drop off, you're going to, you're just going to skim right over top of them. So in a lot of times, you know, you're going to step into it. So if you got a short leader, and you feel that thing starting to like get in the sweet spot, you just take a couple steps right towards them. And that thing with that short leader will park right down on that ledge, free fall down in there. And that's usually when you get the grab. That's amazing. Yeah, I love that. That's a, that's seriously a, I'm not sure we've dug into that. Anybody that has talked about such a short leader. So that's a, that's a cure uh, tip there. And then, um, and then what about, so, so flies talk a little bit about, um, I'm not sure, you know, if you're using stuff that's got a name or if it's just some random stuff, what, what, what do you, can you throw out some stuff we might be able to kind of look up online? Yeah. So, you know, we, if you just basically look at, you know, like we mentioned Kevin, Kevin Fincher is probably the most innovative, simple fly tire there are, there is. Um, and all of his patterns are super simple um, but it is in, in the, my geographic area, it's all about, you know, being able to see it in dirty water. So, you know, that ice dub head or senyo laser dub heads are pretty critical in my fishing on a day to day only because I have the contrast of the two colored of the heads. Um, and I usually stick with the chartreuses and the pinks and the oranges, um, cause I'm fishing off colored water and you play around the sizes of them. And then after that, um, I've tried rabbit, I've tried everything else, but I tie a fly called the triple tail. And that was nothing more than an ice dub head, some flash, but all those slopping tips that I always clipped off when I'm tying, I have piles of them. And so I ended up just using those nice tips. You know, they're about three inches long or so. And I use those and I put three of those on the back and I'll incorporate a few little rubber legs with an ice dub head is about a you know a very short two minute tie and I can get I can fish super aggressive with flies like that I can lose them because you're you're going to lose flies in my in my geographic area and then so the key to that short leader too Dave is that I'm not fishing weighted flies there are times I do but I'm fishing that nice neutral buoyant fly that if my tip happens to park or touch. All I got to do is just raise the rod or take a little bit, step back, put it, put it back under tension. And then that, that nice, easy casting fly that has a lot of movement is the, is the go-to. 
And so basically, yeah, your line's doing the work for you. So it's it's getting down there and your fly is sinking, but it, it might even be kind of float. So it's not literally on the bottom. It's kind of just above the fish. Yeah, about nine inches or so, you know, and we are, these trout are super stale sometimes in that cold water. So you got to put it, they got to put it in the wheelhouse. They won't come up vertically. And as it's come down, so are you like spotting them and then, you know, that sort of thing? How, how's that look? How are you, are you just finding the fish just reading the water? So mo- most of the time when I'm swinging, I am, um, the water is so gritty, you couldn't see them. But there are, they are there, there are times though, when we have a drought period where all the rivers are down super low and you have unlimited visibility and I can see them. And then the first thing out of the gate is going to be a dry fly swinging them. You know, that's that's going to be a mandatory because that's the key to catching the fish on a dry fly is they've got to be able to see it from their position to the surface, regardless of where I've ever been. It's just like they got to see it. So when I get that three, four, five, six foot visibility, the first thing I do if that water temperature is over 42 is I'm going to let somebody like we're going to throw a dry fly first. And then see if we get one to come up and then we're going to just slowly work our way down into with an intermediate tip. What's the, so by dry fly, you're actually talking about like a a skater or just like a wet fly? Yep. So um, I'm actually talking about a skater. So I've had very little success with, um, I do catch a few on like foam, but my, I would have to say my go-to would be like um, when it gets that clear would be a number 10 black muddler with the wings clipped off um, and just, you know, basically let it skate a little bit of dead drift skate and just see if I can get a player. You can see their eyeballs, you know, they look up at it and then when it breaks out of peripheral vision, you're going to see them like pull off. If there's a couple of them, you might see one pull off and give it the, you know, like, Oh, okay, what's that type deal. But that's usually my go-to and I'll fish that in white, you know, with orange thread um so it's but a lot of times it's it's that at the very end or something just those little few little twitch not quite a a regressive scopper but just a nice little hey we're still around give them a little twitch but um one last tip would be is that um a lot of times in bc we'll do like a moose turd and we'll riffle hitch that thing like a third of the way down the body so if the fish are if the fish are super like super not aggressive and you see some follows if you riffle hitch that like a third of the way down the body when it comes down on the dangle it it has a tendency to do that that little waggle and you can park it and then manipulate your line left inward to the river outward of the river and that thing will just keep dancing downstream of you and it sometimes drives them crazy uh, just because it's not going to progress to the bank so they do, does that little uh, Hawaiian uh, Bob dance there at the very end. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. I'd, I'd like to see that on, on a video. On a, <laughs> do, do you have any yeah, videos out there of, of any of this stuff or is that something I, I'm not sure what you're doing there? No, I'm just starting to get into it, Dave. I mean, I could barely touch my cell phone, but as we talked, you know, I'm starting <laughs> to get into social, social media and, you know, I'm the rage angler. I just love fishing, man. That's what I do. But now I find it's very important to do all these uh, things too. <laughs> That's right. We need to we need to find you like a social media manager, somebody to take over your your stuff. <laughs> uh, so so I did want to note Todd Hirano. He um, he's out here. He's this uh, like extreme. All the only thing he does is winter fishing on the on the surface. Like so, he's chasing. So he's, I'll put a link. He's got some, a pretty good resource. If you want to learn, um, you know, for anybody that's listening, want to dig in, he's, he's pretty much, oh, there's a few guys out here, but, but that's all he does. So um, I love it though. This is awesome. Even out there in your neck of the woods where you probably don't hear much about dry fly fishing, you're giving it a shot just to, you know, when the conditions are right. Yeah. I met Todd, you know, I mean, probably eight years ago, uh, him and Tony, they were uh, up on the Maurice in BC. And then, you know, Todd's flies and then uh you know Tony showed me the floral fiber little bit of a, a tip of putting floral fiber on the tails of these fi- for these fish to give them like a little bullseye but that's why I said the most of those Todd and those guys they forgot more about swinging flies than I'll ever know and then you know casting wise and all these mentors I have from the west coast I I greatly appreciate all the schooling they've gave me over the years man so it's so cool I know it's a lifelong thing I know it's the the casting and the spay and 
Um, I mean, they, it's like, yeah, whatever level you want to take it to the extreme level. I mean, when you look at your, I mean, you're obviously a huge name, you know, you know, most people probably have heard of you. What, you know, what is your specialty? You know, if you talk about it, like, what, what is your, what do you think is the thing you do best or you're most known for? You know, I think I'm really, I think one of my good skill sets is you could drop me off in any river and you give me a day or two and I can usually with a two-handed rod usually figure out that a there's no fish in the system <laughs> or, or b this is the game man like they're up in the top of the elevator pools and they're on the run or hey no they're all sulky there's very few fish they're static they're stale and they're sitting right you know sitting in the back ends and I got to like surgically remove these fish back there type stuff but that's usually one of my good ones and i'm really good at never fishing the same water twice even if i catch fish <laughs> i love to see what's around the next corner yeah so you're exploring so that's probably a good tip too is just that you know like we said don't get stuck on one pool but but it's pretty much you're out there exploring and, and i mean covering water yeah i I very rarely if if me and you did a float regardless of where we're at and we had a great day it's probably 95% to 100% that we wouldn't do that same float again unless somebody bent my arm I would say well what's over that way you know let's let's learn let's learn let's learn about this section of river that I've never seen you know it's so cool that's that exploratory part of me well let's talk a little bit about that just uh, here um, on the on the boats and things so I mean, I guess I was kind of focusing, you know, on, you know, you're walking and wading and some of these are, you know, there's probably different levels of like the combat fishing where elbow to elbow. And then you got some of these places where you can get away from people. But you're also doing some boat. Talk about what boat, you know, where you're fishing, using a boat. Are people out there with drift boats? Is this out in the lake? So what's that look like? So I, um, other than other than one, other, one or two other anglers, I'm, um, I operate, you know, a 22-foot multi-species boats on the Great Lakes uh, stripping streamers and sinking lines and floating lines on Lake Erie um, and Lake St. Clair, chasing muskies. We're chasing, you know, bowfin, carp, smallmouth bass, largemouth bass, northern pike. You know, there's days that, you know, people don't realize that, you know, for the last, geez, oh man, 40 some years, I've been chasing these fish out there. And it's hard to find clientele because it's, it's like saltwater fishing, Dave. It's super tough, but you know, I'm fishing, the Canadian border's open, so I'm like super stoked to get over and fish Pelee Island on the west end of Lake Erie and fishing 17 miles offshore on a reef that comes up to five feet that's never seen fly, that's seen fly, never seen a fly. Like, these fish I'm fishing for have never seen flies. And in St. Clair, the better musky fishing is up um, on the Canadian side this time of year, so super stoked that we're getting to finally go over there and get a little, ch you know, whack at some of the better fishing now, man. It's but I think I think it's a great adventure and a learning platform for majority anglers um, on the Great Lakes. If they're not a saltwater destination angler, they're pretty much cack handed by not learning how to cast into the wind and learning about sinking lines and big flies and oval casts and all that stuff necessary to make you a well-rounded angler. So it's usually, when I take somebody out of the boat, it's usually an experience the first time. And by the end of the day, you know, we put our tails between our legs and we get a few fish. But then the next time out, they got the game. They're like, all right, you know, I practice. Let's go do this. Just like saltwater fishing. So it's pretty cool, though. And I want to note, uh, Russ Madden was actually on recently. We talked about, he, he really gets excited for the Chinook. I think he, you know, he was talking about the same thing out there, stripping and, you know, in the boats, uh, you know, is that something steelhead and salmon, are you chasing those in your, in your bigger boat as well? So they get down on the thermocline and my part of the lake. So, um, we, like I said, we, we have an opportunity all the way up until about, um, first week of June. But mainly I call it Mother's Day. And, this, and then after Mother's Day, they start progressing offshore. Um, and then they usually don't come back inshore until that second week of September, third week of September when they start. And then I got to be careful because they're out of temperature. So I usually, you know, I don't want to bring them into water that's, you know, high 60s, mid, you know, low 70s. So I have to be careful, you know, about how I bring them in or where I'm fishing for them at that time of year, too. So, yeah, and I'm just kind of thinking back to, um, you know, just a few of the, the guests that we've had over the years that have focused on this. And I think, I think the interesting thing is that we were talking about a little bit the kind of the smaller game, um, you know, we focus on today. I mean, if you, you've 
broke out a bunch of good tips here. Before we kind of leave this, anything else you want to give a shout out to as far as, um, you know, other resources and things like that where somebody might dig in? I mean, if somebody was, you know, again, going out there and they wanted to take our conversation further, where, where would you send them? You know, I think I think as far as research goes, I think you can't do any better than your local fly shop. But the main thing, I think the main thing is um, you have to segregate your fishing from your casting skills. So many anglers go out and they try to do both at the same time and the human brain just doesn't work that way. My recommendation is to go take a casting lesson from your local pro or go to a spay clave. I've been, you know, I can't wait to go do spayorama again. I can't wait to go to Michigan spay clave. And the amount of knowledge and the grace of a two-handed industry of like teaching beginners, it beats catching a hundred fish in one day because you're going to like perfect your skill that's needed to go catch a fish. So that would be my final say goodbye tip. You know, cast first, fish later. <laughs> cast first, yeah. And, that's, and the casting is a, a lifelong thing, right? How is your, when you think of your spay cast, how do you feel about it? Do you feel like you're you're feeling pretty good or do you got a long way to go? Oh, so you go to spay a ROM or are you, you know, when I see Travis Johnson and I hang out with him and he grabs the, you know, he grabs a 15-footer by the butt, two of them, and casts them at the same time. I realize I'm st- I'm still a turd compared to those guys out there, but you know I can cast a skagit line to get me going, but I still have a long way to go to uh, really perfect my skill. That's what's so cool about it. Nice, Jeff. Well, we're about there. I just want to take it. We got a, a, a new segment here I've been doing occasionally. Uh, the the G three. This is uh, our own G three, but this is uh, kind of. You know, and this the three G's, I guess the starting this off is, you know, when you think about your career, you've been doing this a while. What, what do you, you know, when you look back, what, what are you most grateful for? If you think of one thing, does anything come to mind there? I am. I think the first thing would be the people that have supported me from families and that they have suffered, you know, to, to put my career where it's at and just spend so many days on the water. I like to always thank the people that have said, hey, he loves this. Just let him go do it. And then I think all the mentors that were so gracious to spend time with me from the West Coast and up in Canada and even around my area, the Great Lakes, that just share their knowledge and, you know, without even asking anything for it. You know, it's a big community. I think that's my, you know, I love to just say, just say thanks to everybody that helped me out, man. Greatly appreciate it. That's amazing. Yeah. And you're still, sounds like connecting your, the BC. Who's the BC when you go over there? Do you have a, a shop or a, a person or a group that you connect with there or in your fishing, like the Skeena system? I do. I go a little bit all over. Um, you know, I started out just going up there and going to Oscars and then meeting April Vokey. You know, I know her really well. So, you know, we used her place as a base camp and then basically just did some couch surfing and rented a car and just brought my water master with me and just this started floating around everywhere um and then now i'm uh, working with ken morish um, a little bit and um we're, i'm hosting a spring skiing trip with him um which is cool i love the spring fishing and then hopefully hopefully get back there again this fall here i go to alaska every fall now but still hoping to get back there this fall as long as the everything's going to go smoothly here in the next couple three four weeks that's right. Yeah, Alaska, you could probably count on it, but I guess the COVID thing still, Canada might, you never know where that might go, right? I think it's a week by week right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, we're actually in the, you know, where we're at, they're already, you know, like we're going back now. You know, they're talking about, again, I guess we've been, kind of been off and on, shutting things down and opening them up. But um, yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed that we can all get back into the the normal thing. So, well, let's, let's just finish this up. So the, so the second G of that, of that G3 is, um, you know, giving back, what, what would you, you know, what's occurred recently that you kind of would like to forget about something that, you know what I mean? Is this kind of maybe annoying, maybe something you don't get excited about anything come to mind? Um, you know, I think the way that how the, the division of wildlife have, um, I, I've seen the populations of native fish species drop dramatically and I, and I really have a problem when the division of wildlife, they, they don't fix it until the wheel falls completely off. And then it's like, they say, oh, there's a wheel. And then it's like two, three years later, it's like, oh, it's that, that's our wheel. And by that time it's too goddamn late, Dave. And then next thing you know, we're in this state of recovery mode that we can never really, you know, recover from. 
yeah, I just, I get a little, get on my soapbox. I get really PO'd about just like, hey, let's look in the future and just say, hey, this is a problem. If it closes the season down, so be it. Close it down. Whatever you got to do. Stop tournament fishing. Do something. But geez, that's where I get a little prickly about that stuff. Gotcha. Is, is steelhead one of those species or do you guys feel like steelhead runs are pretty, pretty healthy up there? You know, it's all trout and it's all hatchery and I'm not really concerned about that. You know, it's the, it's the smallmouth bass populations, um, that are out in the lake. It's the, it's the native river smallmouth bass populations that are no longer there. Um, it's just these little bullet points of, you know, the disrespect from, a you know, that some anglers give the, the freshwater drum. That's one of my favorite species. We're going to start really push, really pushing them hard because they're the, you know, um, the respect the drum. Um, just because they're really plentiful and they hit the, you know, they hit the chicken feathers good, but just little, just little things just to educate people to like, Hey, let's, let's, let's fish smart and be smart about, you know, our future. There you go. Yeah. We might have to get you on later for the talk about a drum episode, freshwater drum. That sounds pretty cool. We'll, uh, we'll leave that for the next one. Then to wrap this up the, um, you know, just looking out as far as a goal or something you're looking forward to anything come to mind there in the next say year or, or beyond. You know, besides really fine-tuning my business and understanding, you know, the connection with all the social media is that I'm really working hard to try to pass the torch on to the younger generation guides and anglers to say, like, hey, you know, I, I've been up this road and I've did more damage to fish and fisheries than any of you. And you might not want to do it that way because I've that's one good thing about being old-er. <laughs> is that I've I've screwed a lot of things up and I just so try to say, hey, check this out. You know, I don't really bash them. I just say, hey, check it out. Make your own opinion. And I think it's working. There you go. Do you see yourself, um, you know, with the fishing and the guiding, just kind of like guiding forever? Or do you have a plan to maybe get out of it and retire or something like that? Or what, what's your take on that? I know because there's different people that talk about a, a plan of guiding where they see an end in, in sight. I will, as long as I'm physically capable, because I don't do it for the money, I really enjoy fishing with other anglers. So I'm going to guide uh, until I'm, you know, I don't know, I'm 60 now. I'm going to hope to guide till I'm 70 or more. But I think the main thing is, is that I'm going to guide less and steer more towards conservation, Dave. I think, um, I think it, you know, as I become that aging angler, we all go through that vicious cycle of catch them all learn how to fly fish, and then eventually like, we got to protect what we screwed up. So that's where I see myself is being a rage angler. It's super hard to be a conservationist at the same time. It's like that fine line, but I'm going to slowly but surely work more towards the activism and, you know, that conservation more than I am fishing. That's my goal. There you go. And, and who is the, is there one group that sticks out, the conservation group up in your neck of the woods that people could uh, maybe look into, get behind? You know, yeah. So we have um, we have West Western Reserve, you know, Western Reserve Conservation Group. They they protect a lot of waters. The, the the Metro Park Systems do a really good job of protecting you know the corridors. Natural History Museum, um, the the Trout Club there. It's a small group, but they have their hearts are in the right place there too. Um, as far as like you know, looking at future studies and stuff like that. But those are the the key bullet points now. Um, and you can always go to, you know, Great Lakes Alliance and stuff like that because we there's just so many of them. You just pick pick your battle of one, you know, and then just stick with that battle till you get some traction, you know. That's amazing. I think those are all uh, big groups that I'll put links out to as many of those as I can. And um, cool, Jeff. Well, I think that's all I have for you. I think we, we feel like we've uh, filled a good chunk of time here. Uh, how are you feeling about this? I mean, you've done this so many times. Do you ever feel like... Um, you know, something new, new comes out. I mean, today, was there anything new that came out today or is this kind of the same stuff you've talked about hundreds of times? Uh, not, you know, I, you know, Dave, I like the, uh, I like how you have a little more well-rounded through everything, through the conservation, through everything. Uh, I think that was really a great, great podcast. I greatly appreciate you on uh, invite again, my man. Hope we can do something different. Sounds good. I'll send everybody out to greatlakesflyfishing.com. And uh, yeah, man, until we meet again, uh, I'll definitely keep in touch with you on social. Are you, uh, I guess, Instagram, is that is that the best place on social where you're most active? Yeah, I guess so. Yep. I got a whopping, you know, I don't know how many followers, but yeah, Great Lakes dude, that's where they can find me. All right. Thanks, Jeff. We'll talk to you soon. You too, Dave. Thanks. So there you go. 
you want to find all these show notes, all the links, everything else we covered today, including some of the lines and uh, the stuff Jeff talked about, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash 255. 255 will get you to the show notes where we have uh, easy to click links. Um, if you get a chance, please subscribe before you get out of here. If you haven't already and in, been enjoying this episode or the podcast, go to your app, click subscribe. And if you also go over to uh, wetflyswing.com slash subscribe, that'll be an easy way to click over and uh, subscribe on your app. You can also uh, uh, join our newsletter, wetflyswing.com. Uh, head over there and in the sidebar, just join that newsletter. I usually send out an email every week or, or two sometimes just with an update of our uh, podcasts that we've had going. Podcasts, uh, podcasting. How are we doing right now? I think we are still doing two a week, which has been, it seemed like it was epic for a while. I think we may even be moving to three a week. If, if you'd like to hear one more episode a week, uh, from this show, send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com. Let me know um, what you think, uh, what day you would like it. Would you like it on a Monday, a Wednesday, a Friday, a Saturday? Uh, probably maybe doesn't matter to you, but I'm, those are some of the little things I need to figure out um, before we get there. So I want to thank our new editor, uh, Domingo. Uh, Dom, thanks for doing this. Uh, I want to give a shout out to you. This is... Uh, I'm recording this, uh, getting things set up so you can take over and clean this thing up and uh, excited to uh, this is going to help us elevate the podcast. So, uh, but I want to thank you again for listening today and uh, looking forward to catching up with you on the next episode and hope to maybe catch you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.